Sam Clements and welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. This is a podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime and is entirely curated by guests on this podcast. Today we're joined by Mark Jenkin, director of new movie Bait, which is in cinemas now or available on BFI Player, DVD, Blu-ray, etc. If you're listening in the future. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. It's great to be here. You had, was it the world premiere earlier this year? So this has kind of been your whole year in 2019. Yeah, it's been like six months really of chaos since since Berlin. We had the world premiere in, in Berlin, February, February the 10th, I think. It's just kind of snowballed from there. We had a lot of interest in Berlin. We had a few offers from distributors and uh, in the end, BFI picked up the film and they've been incredible promoting it and taking it on that sort of trip from festivals to to cinemas so it's been it's been non-stop since february really blimey do you remember how you felt at berlin before showing it to that international audience for the first time yeah i think i don't think i had much expectation really we had a bit of a logistical nightmare getting to berlin in that myself and my partner decided by, to go by train. So we were mostly, con- and I'm, you know, I'm in the far west of Cornwall, so it's a day's travel to get to London. So it was, it was two days of getting from home to, to Berlin, so it was just the relief of actually getting there in on time for the, for the screening was the main thing. And then we'd sold out the Delphi in Berlin, which was 660 seats, and everybody was still there at the end, which was a big relief. And the Q&A was kind of, great really engaging and it was the first time I'd seen it in front of an audience and it was just really exciting and we came out and a a really good review had been published during the screening online and uh, that kind of changed everything really we just picked up a huge amount of interest in Berlin they had to organize another press screening because we were in the forum section so the press screening wasn't particularly busy but once this review had come out, and it was Peter Bradshaw in the in the Guardian, there was a lot of interest from the press. So there was another press screening, then there was all of our public screenings sold out, and then they did another couple of screenings which sold out. So it was just, it was really overwhelming actually. The Berlin experience will be something I never forget. You've got a, a rich history of filmmaking behind you. Do you do you, have you always made films in Cornwall? Yeah, I mean when I'm, I've been in Cornwall most of my life. I had a little time away when I was at college and then was in London for a little bit but I didn't really make a lot while I was away just because I went certainly when I was in London because I was just working to exist so I didn't really do a lot the, the one film I did make when I was in London I, I came back to Cornwall to, to make it because I knew I could make it cheaply with my friends and with favours and that kind of thing which was one of my very early films so uh, you know I'm very rooted in Cornwall so my work's very rooted in Cornwall. It's the it's the it's the world I can portray in in an authentic way. I think I can really make I can you know I can I, I think I feel I can make universal stories, but they've got to be grounded in somewhere that I can write with an authenticity. And and for me, that's that's Cornwall, and it's an endlessly fascinating place and endlessly fascinating people. Bait is shot on sixteen millimeter film. Is that something that you always do? You prefer to shoot on celluloid? Yeah, I I shoot exclusively on on film now. I started shooting Super 8 when I was 
17, 18 years old because that's if you wanted to. I'm 43, so at that point, if you wanted to shoot on film back then, sort of early early 90s, or shoot a film, you you were shooting on film and you were you were shooting on Super 8, you know, Kodachrome 40, and shooting cartridges and sending them off to Germany and getting them back a few weeks later. So that was where my first love of film came from, really. And and like everybody else, I got I got swept up in the in the democratization of of equipment when mini dv came out and i worked with mini dv for a long time and i really loved that format and then i started shooting hd video and went went down that route like like most people but i i sort of fell out of love with it really i found the reliance on the equipment too great and i couldn't i'm not a particularly technical person so i could, i couldn't keep up with the technology, it seemed like every day the camera that I was using was out of date. And at that point, I went back to shooting Super 8. I bought a Super 8 camera again and bought a couple of rolls of film and, and then went, ah, yeah, I remember. This was this was what I was in love with and and started shooting Super 8. And from there, started shooting 16mm, which I hadn't shot. And that was about 10 years ago, I suppose. And I haven't really shot anything digitally since then. That sounds like it's quite liberating, actually, sort of going in the other direction to a lot of the industry when, like you say, they're trying to keep up to date with the latest hardware. And, you know, your camera is very much that camera which is made at that time and it ain't changing. Yeah, exactly. My, the camera's never going to be out of date because it hasn't been in date for about 40 years. And it's <laughs> it's it's funny because people who don't shoot film, when they when I talk to them, there's there's some people are really terrified of the idea of shooting film and thinking it's risky and thinking it's expensive and all of these kind of things. But for me, it's just, it's the easy option. It's so mm. simple. You know, I've got a camera that does hardly anything. You can change the shutter speed, you can change the aperture and you can change the film stock you put in it. And, but it can't do anything on its own. You, you, you tell it everything. You've got these three variables and there's, there's no mystery to it at all. But, Having said that, there is this incredible alchemy that that exists when you process a roll of film, which is also what I love. So I I, I process all my own footage because I don't want anybody to have that that fun. I want to have all of that. So so for me, it's a, it's a simplicity. I don't record any location sound or anything like that. I I post sync everything when in a in a controlled environment. So for me, simplicity is is the is the aim really constantly thinking how can I do this in a more simple way and and this is where I've ended up cheers got yourself a helper then crew you haven't got a boat Martin well I'll soon yeah your prices see you directly Liz On the sort of the actual film used in Bates, you've got this very distinct look to it. Uh, is that part of your developing process? Yes, that's the that's the side effect of the way I develop film. Somebody somebody said to me the other day, asking how how much effort goes into making the film look that scratched and that imperfect. But actually, the the truth is that's my very best attempt at getting the cleanest negative out of out of the developing tank. But I work with a very small tank, and it's a it's quite a, a quite a what do you say quite a destructive way of processing, really. Because I use a rewind tank, so I'm manually winding the film through the developer at all times. So it's it, you get a flicker and you get a grain that is inconsistent, 
and then because the roll of film, two and a half minutes of film is about 100 feet, I then need a way of washing that, which can't be done in a development tank, that's just done in a bucket, and it's quite a destructive washing process where the edge of the acetate may scratch the emulsion, which is something that early on, when I was working more non-narrative experimentally, I kind of liked all of that, those imperfections, and then I switched over to using this process for more long-form narrative stuff. I was a bit worried about the the neg not being quite as pristine as it should be but actually I just had to surrender to it and go well whatever comes out comes out there'll be an image there of of a sort and actually there's a real beauty in the imperfections I I learned really that that was what I loved was was the unpredictability the imperfections because I think that's kind of human really it reminds me of you know getting your your photos back and and sort of seeing how they've come out and it's it's actually quite exciting you know especially if you're processing it with your own hands that must be a a whole new level of of intimacy with your project yeah yeah and i'm really i mean to sound too much of a hippie but i'm really in touch with the negative you know that roll of film goes through the camera and I, you know, I load it in the camera and then I hear it go through the camera, then I unload it and I'm touching it all the time and then I load it into the processing tank weeks later, then I carefully process it and I'm handling it all the time. So it's, it, I do have quite an intimate relationship with it. It's a very tactile experience. So I love to, I love to then see when you take it out of the, the fixed bath to, to see the image. I mean, it's really exciting. And a lot of those imperfections are the most exciting moments. And after a couple of minutes of, of seeing that grain and, and, and the marks on the film, you get into a rhythm of it. And I, I just loved it. I found it was so captivating. And it sort of adds to the to the characters and to the setting, you know, in a way. It makes it feel very sort of real and authentic. And and I just got such a kick about of the, the surprise, you know, light leaks or, or, or scratches or, or just, you know, the grain. It was it sort of gave me... Uh, something else to for my brain to think about which i don't get to think about during most films yeah no that's great i think i do think you know and i'm not bigging up our film but i i do think i watch a lot of stuff where i i, I think not a lot of thought or development has gone into the form of the film you probably had a lot of development on the script and the story but nobody's thought too much about the form and i'm not saying everybody should shoot on 16 millimeter and hand process it but i do think there is there's a certain lack of imagination when it comes to to how you're presenting stories on screen and and those sort of imperfections you get from the film are sometimes really magical i I shoot two takes effectively of everything i shoot one take and then i shoot a safety and then sometimes there'll be two takes that are exactly the same, except there might be just a little flash of light across the character's eyes that wasn't there on the day, wasn't there in the performance or anything like that, but it's just in a little anomaly in the processing. And suddenly I think, actually, that's saying something that wasn't there that's really going to help me. And, and at first I think that's a bit of a cheat because that wasn't in the performance, that wasn't on location or anything like that. But then, then I think, but, but film's about form. You know, this isn't storytelling or a novel or or theatre. It's something separate and you have to embrace the beauty of the form and the imperfections and the unpredictability of it. And I think I, I don't see enough films that really do that. You say you do two two takes of every shot. How long was the production and, and how long did it take you to, to hand process all of this film before you could edit well, it's quite a fragmented process. So the shoot was four weeks. We did two weeks uh, around the harbour 
and the boat work and the beach work and stuff on the quayside, which was the last two weeks of September 2017. And then the first two weeks of October, once the weather had started turning, we went and did two weeks of interiors. So it was just, it was a straight four week shoot. And then I think the day after the wrap party, I started processing. So I had 130 rolls, so about 13,000 feet, which I think is five miles or I might, no, maybe five kilometers of film. And I think it took almost up till Christmas from the middle of October, working five or six days a week. And then I had it all processed and it had all come out, but I, but I didn't put it on the projector or anything because obviously I don't want to damage the camera neg. So although I knew it had all come out because I could look at individual frames, I didn't see any moving footage till after Christmas. And then that's the that's the relief when it's been sent away and it's been digitally scanned and I can watch a, a low-res proxy file of what it looks like. And then from there, the edit, the edit's reasonably quick. Again, it's very fragmented because I'll do a picture cut roughly roughly in line with the script, although I won't consult the script. I'll obviously have the script in my head. So I'll do, I'll do a silent picture cut and then I'll gradually start revoicing the characters and building the audio. So the, the, the post-production isn't long. I think we had picture lock by May and then the whole thing was was finished. I, I, can't, I can't really remember when we finished it. It was around about the end of the Tour de France that we finished the sound mix because I remember sitting in the in the dubbing theatre whilst the mix was done watching watching stages of the Tour de France. So it must have been end of July. Wow, that feels like, even though there's, you know, this is a very hands-on film and there's a lot of moving parts, that sounds like quite a quick turnaround, really. Yeah, I think the fact that it is hands-on is, it, it means that it's quick. I think if you, if, if you, if, for me, if I know that I've got a lot of work to do, I get on with it, which means that I normally finish it quicker than if there wasn't all of that work to do before I could start the actual physical cutting of the film, then it probably would have been a slower process. But I just, you know, I knew I had a box of film in my, in the studio that was a one-off. I had no way of backing it up, so it was just here in a crate in my studio, and I knew I just had to get it processed, and I had to get it all processed, then I could get it, send it off and get it scanned, and then effectively it would be backed up. So my work rate was really quick early on, and I wanted to keep the energy from the shoot going, the momentum that we'd built up during the shoot. So, and I, I put everything else, except for family life, you know, I put everything else on the back burner, so I didn't do any other work. I was just head down trying to get it done. You know, very helpful producers, very helpful collaborators, very accommodating cast who came in one by one and revoiced their dialogue, sometimes at very short notice because I wanted to make changes or tweak stuff. So it was just a brilliant team who were all invested in the in the ethos of what we were trying to do, which was to make a, a film in quite a complicated way in terms of logistics and also with very little money, but everybody bought into it and that allowed us to, to, to produce it in a quite an efficient way and, and get it finished quickly so then we could hand it over to the... To, the, to our agents who were handling the festival strategy to try and get our world premiere. And it paid off. <laughs> it, it, yeah, I mean, it has done so far. Yeah. <laughs> Importantly, because we're on the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest, uh, Bait is 89 minutes long. Yeah. So my dream is that somebody picks Bait for this podcast and comes in and gets it in your festival. I would love to talk to someone about Bates. I think it would be a great addition to the festival. So, Mark, when I, I asked you to choose a film, how did you go about selecting your, your choice? 
Well, I, I do a, a screening at my house from time to time. Try to do it every week, but it doesn't happen every week, where I invite friends around and I put something on. And it's normally something that's short, to get everybody in the same room for a long length of time is difficult. So it's normally a film that's under 90 minutes. So I quickly thought back through the more recent films that that I'd shown. And I quite often try, you know, if I'm curating them, I try and do a little intro that everybody sort of laughs at, the kind of pomposity of it. But I, so I do a little bit of research about the film. So the films I have shown on these little screens, I do tend to know a little bit about, and they tend to be under 90 minutes. So I just had a quick look back and there was only really one film that was in the running because it's just something that I saw. I didn't know anything about it. I saw it on BFI player and I watched, I, I read the description of it. I thought that sounds amazing. I watched it and it was, it was just fantastic. And so, yeah, there was, there was, there was only one film really. Uh, and Mark, what film did you choose for the festival? It is Jetsy Skolomowski's 1978 film, The Shout. During a cricket match at an insane asylum between the inmates and the local villagers, Crossley and Graves keep themselves entertained by telling stories. Crossley tells how he came to possess supernatural powers, enabling him to kill with a single shout, and although his companion dismisses the tale as an insane fantasy, as the match continues, the proceedings take a sinister turn. Dot, dot, dot. Yeah, well, it's a brave person who would try and write the blurb for the back of a DVD for this film, I think. I mean, there's nothing there that is incorrect, but there's also nothing there that really captures anything about the film. No, they sort of missed out two of the main characters. <laughs> yeah, because uh, yeah, Graves <laughs> is a very minor character, basically a device. Yes, so. basically uh, they, they've set up the framing device there, which is the watching the cricket match at the Insane Asylum and... and uh, the, the, the main story is the, 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 the tale they're telling starring John Hurt. <laughs> mm. But actually, but it's funny because Mary, my partner, said to me earlier, what film are you talking about in the pod- podcast? I said The Shout, and she said, remind me. And I went through all of the plot, and she was like, nope, nope, doesn't ring any bells. And I went, it's got a cricket match, and she went, oh yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> so I think the cricket is, it, it's funny, isn't it? Cause I was watching it today thinking this is fantastic, that, you know, and it's made by... Somebody who's not English, but it's set in England. It's a very this sort of very English setting, but absolutely nails this cricket match, and it should be thought of as the football ma- on the level as the football match in Kes. It sort of so- captures. I don't know nothing about cricket, but in the sort of in English context, I think it just captures that absolutely perfectly. I'm not hugely familiar with Jersey Skolomonsky. I know the name. I think. This might be the first film I watched of his, but he's had a really long career and and is still working today. He popped up in as a cameo in one of the Avengers films. I, I noticed on IMDb. Yeah, yeah, no, I noticed that. I mean, I'm not, I'm no authority on him, and in fact, I I saw the, his other big fam- famous film is Deep End from 1970, which is another really strange film. That it's one of those films that. I had no idea whether I was enjoying it when I was watching it, and then afterwards I couldn't stop thinking about it. I've had that sort of three or four times watching films, and and Deep End is a, is is one of those films. It's it's very strange. It's very it's got a real sense of uncanny to it. This sense of foreboding, which is really powerful. And I think that was the, that was the thing that he was famous for. Maybe that was his first English language film. I think 
And then the the only other two films other than The Shout that I know is The Light Ship from 1985 and then Essential Killing that he made in 2010, which I watched a few few weeks ago. Essential Killing is also under 90 minutes. So he's uh, he's got form in this area. And I think it was also produced by Jeremy Thomas again. Yeah, I mean, you know, Jeremy Thomas, what a, what an eye he's got, if that's what it is, you know, with the Nick Rogue work. Because I think he did he do Eureka. Yep. And Bad Timing, I think. Bad Timing, maybe it was the first one he did. And I, I, I did read that Nick Rogue was actually penciled to to direct the shout earlier which would have which would, again would have been an interesting proposition i don't actually know how much different it would have been because i do think there's a there's quite a lot of rogue in in this film there's certainly a, a couple of moments in the film which i think are little nods to to performance oh, is performance before this yeah performances before this i think even in terms of its um how this film is historically looked on the the blu-ray that i'm, I'm holding here is on the marketing it's got a, a perfect companion piece to nicholas rogue 70s masterpiece don't look now you know and then like they're right uh, it right. is but it's nothing to do with the film <laughs> yeah no i didn't think i actually didn't think of don't look now i did think more of of performance and 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 obviously there's an you know the walkabout link as well because there's this mm. aborigin aborigine subplot or theme running through the shout which I, th- I think maybe made me think of walkabout a little bit but it's it's uh, i just think like rogue he's somebody who knows how to use the form and you can describe the plot of this story any way you like but it could only be a film which is strange because it's based on a short story by robert graves in the same yes. way that don't look now i just think that could only be a film yet it's based on a short story by daphne du maurier Absolutely. And especially as you say, this film, I mean, the, the titular shout, as the black of the, the, the blurb we read out earlier mentions, it, it's really crucial to the film. And, and I, I wonder, I just wonder how that would be depicted on the page. Yeah, and I'm actually surprised that they depicted it in the film because I was thinking they can't do this. They, can't, mm. they cannot create something that is as spectacular as it's set up to be in the beginning of the film. And I think most a lot of filmmakers would avoid it. There'd be a clever way of avoiding showing it. There'd be some there'd be some subtle way of alluding to it without showing it. But they they just go full bore with it, and visually and sonically, you know, the mm. shot of him performing the scream when the camera's very low, looking up at him, and he's leant back in this sort of silhouette, and then the sound is just something else. I was watching it this afternoon, in the middle of the afternoon. I suddenly became very aware of our neighbours at that point. <laughs> the walls were shaking. But, it, you know, it needs to be, because the film wouldn't work unless you had that, that moment. Greater than the frightening power of exorcism. More mystifying than any omen of reincarnation. The soul-shattering experience of The Shout. In the story, which is being told in the Sale Asylum, we see Susanna York and, and John Hurt, who are a, a couple, and Alan Bates' character appears <laughs> in their village. Yeah. And he has this tall tale about, you know, learning this Aboriginal shout, and he's got this 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 whole story behind him. And and I was even though the film is called The Shout and my the cover of the DVD features a man shouting on it, I was still like, it can't be real. Like it cannot <laughs> be real. This is crazy. Yeah. And I, I love how it had that ambiguity to it, and I guess audiences at the time would have even, you know. Know, more ambiguity about it because it's such a tall tale that he yeah. is telling them yeah but but that's i think by by telling a tall tale and then showing it 
I think that that makes you wonder whether any it starts it makes you start to question whether anything you're seeing is real, and I think that's the power of the film because you're constantly thinking, hold on, let's think back to the cricket match, just think back about the 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 setup to this is it is this this is a very subjective retelling because the whole film's a, f- a flashback effectively, mm. and so I think by being so literal about it, and it's almost like childlike, it's very or childish in the way mm. that this boastful story has been being told i think that's the beauty of the film because you're it's like an untrustworthy narrator and, and not only the narrator in the story but also the the film director who's sort of leading you down this path and feeling that you're going to be abandoned at any moment and there's going to be no resolution that's i guess part of its its charm really that, that, that character that alan bates plays is such a gift for uh, audiences to watch and I'm, I'm sure for the actor and, and the filmmakers to play with mm. because he's he's just this force of nature which lands in this you know very stable calm setting and he knocks this couple out of their routine and and you know things start to get a little weird yeah <laughs> but it, it's such a with that character under that guise he can do anything basically yeah and and just watch how things play out around him who did you think he was and who, what did you think he represented because i started thinking a bit more expansively about this today about whether what he what he could represent to you know how did you read him but so John Hurt's character play he is a he's obsessed with sound he's experimenting in a studio early in the film and then later on we see that he's got a, a, a gig as the church organist so he is very musically minded and whilst all of this is happening the film does have a really lavish soundtrack there's lots of multi-track recording and it's yeah, it feels it's like it's quite a cutting edge soundtrack I think I read at the time it was one of the first films presented in Dolby Stereo yeah. so they're sort of pushing the technical side of the, the presentation of the film so I, I did wonder if Alan Bates, who comes in, it feels like John Hurt's character is maybe just a little bit comfortable and maybe a little bit either bored or repressed in some way. And mm. this is something that he he wants, you know, and it's longing. And, and because this guy, Alan Bates' character's special skill is noise and, and is this shout, is it is it his pent-up sort of musical you know, mindset or his creativity that he feels like he doesn't get playing the church organ? Um, yeah. And this rogue, this handsome rogue who turns up. Yeah, well, yeah, because I started thinking whether he was like a manifestation of his guilt, because mm. he's because John Hurt's having this relation, this affair with a a woman who's the wife of the cobbler in the village, and I wonder whether it was just the guilt that he was suppressing and it manifested itself. Because the first time you see him, he's he when John Hurt's playing the organ in the church and he's gonna go off with the with the cobbler's wife after the 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 church service. He, Alan Bates' character turns up and lets his tyre down on his bike so he can't sort of go off for a bike ride with her. It's all, early on, it's kind of scuppering him. And that forces John Hurt to bring Alan Bates back home. Yeah. Because that's how they, they bond. It's sort of their, their meeting. Yeah. So I, yeah and, I, and then you've got the, and the scream being the sort of, the, the kind of primal, primal scream. Funnily enough, last night I was watching the, the Imagine documentary from the 80s about John Lennon and some of it was about the Ima- the Imagine album I think it was I think it was the Imagine album whatever the album he did after he left the Beatles and that was all about primal scream therapy and then I started thinking about how oh, maybe that's what it's about and the Francis Bacon references throughout in the all the Francis Bacon pictures up in the studio with the is it paralytic child walking on all fours which is recreated yes. by Susanna York and that really really rogian moment and i wonder whether yeah are we supposed to think are we are we supposed to believe that 
Alan Bates, the Crosley character, is is real, or is he just a part of John John Hurt's character? But I think that's the beauty of the film is that it's it's a puzzle, and I really love you know I I, I do I, I love Bresson, and he always said it's important to feel a film before you understand it, and I think this is a real good example of that. I totally forgot about the Francis Bacon uh, paintings, but they're there and they must be there for a reason because that's such a, a, a clear signifier of something. Well, exactly. It's a 90-minute film. You don't have anything in a 90-minute film that doesn't mean something. Mm. Or under 90, yeah, 82 minutes or whatever it is. But but then at the end, during the cricket match, when the cricket match all goes to, to chaos, which is this fantastic ending, you've got a character during during the thunder and lightning storm that's happening shouting that line from Macbeth about it's a... It's a story told by an idiot full of sound and fury uh, signifying yeah. nothing, which is could be a red herring, but it also could be a little clue to how you're supposed to read the whole thing and whether whether that's a whether that's a comment on the narrator within the film or whether that's a comment on the whole film and that we've been hoodwinked into thinking this is much deeper than it actually is and really it's just a bit of a fairy tale. And almost like a, just a comment on what cinema is, that ultimately it's just you know, what can it really do other than sound and fury? And sound being such a massive thing, I mean, that's the other thing about the film, is just not, you've got sound within the narrative, but the sound design of the film is just incredible. Just, you know, just beautiful and a beautiful, disturbing, and, and, and more than 50% of the film, people say you know, it's 50% of the art form, but in films like this, I always just think, without the sound, it would be something completely different. It really lets the filmmakers express not just the actual shout, but, you know, there's all of the, the whole feeling of the film because it is such a complex soundtrack. And I really like how this is Jeremy Thomas's second movie as producer. Oh, is it really? He's he's def- he's not the powerhouse uh, he is today. He hasn't worked with David Cronenberg and uh, Takeshi Miike and Ben Wheatley and Vin Vendors yet. You know, he's he's starting out, but he's going for a film where he has to... You know, the second or first film released in Dolby Stereo. You know, he's he's pushing the art form uh, yeah. in in that respect. Yeah, and I love the studio, John Hurt Studio. I just think it's fantastic, and the fact that it's sort of double height and all of the tape machines and just him in there recording the sound of a bee in a jar and things like that. It kind of really connects with me because I love all of that foley work and when I'm making films so I, I loved all of that kind of stuff and just the attention to detail within it I thought it just thought it was was beautiful come on Buzz yeah boy Anthony, you're going to be late, love. What? I loved how dramatic the landscape is in this. Like in terms of the location scouting and, and finding, they've done such a good job. And it's all really close together. I mean, the cottage is a bit further west than where Salt and Sands is, but it's all very close together. And obviously, the, I think you know a lot of the interiors are. A studio, but you can see how it was made. Though I don't actually think it was that that cheaper film, but you can kind of see that how they really picked a location and then used the location. They they bent to the location rather than trying to get the location to be something that it isn't. And the beach that the cottage overlooks is incredible. 
and you 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 only really see that bit of the coast, which I really like. You know, there's a there's a real limitation. You only the house that they live in, you only see it from maybe one or two angles. So I, they haven't they haven't shot the life out of it. They've been very restrained. And also in the in the in the village where the where the cobblers is, you know, they use they use that the the road that the cobblers is on very very carefully so you get a sense of what the rest of the village looks like without having to see it and i really like that so you you begin to imagine what's beyond the edge of the frame and i, mm. I really love that in film because that that always is an unsettling thing when you you want to know what you're not being shown and it can the, the filmmaker consistently does that during the scene with the shout we see uh, the, the victims of the shout in that uh, farmer who's sort of pops up later in the film we see the funeral happening as well in the background yeah you kind of get you, it's a it's a rule of three isn't it you see you see him laid there in the dunes you're not really not too sure who he is and then while some other action is happening the hearse drives through the village and you know you don't know who you don't definitely know who's in it but you presume and then the vicar turns up and asks john hurt's character to to play the organ at the funeral and then you get the full exposition and it's it's so tragic isn't it because it's mm. there is somebody somebody's died an innocent person who was just happened to be there and, yeah. and also we've seen how traumatic that death must have been because it's been talked about for a lot before then and and we experienced it through john hurt's character what the feeling is like yeah and yeah i just sort of I thought in terms of the runtime and the economy of the storytelling i thought that was a really powerful part and there's an even i mean at the end when crossley gets arrested and the police turn up there's an amazing freeze frame did you see that where the, it 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 freezes on the fr- on on the scream he screams again and there's oh, a, yeah, a policeman yeah. stood next to him and and it's a it's a freeze frame with a rostrum move so before you even really clock the other person which is the policeman it's zoomed past into crossley's face and it's a it's a real clunky sort of 1970s rostrum zoom and it's I, I just love that moment and then it's resolved afterwards because you see that the image unfreezes and then you get the context of what's going on and it is you know again you know they go for it with a scream they not only do they show it they they show it again and the second time for me when you see it is even more horrible because you, you you know what the result is i i like that it's used sparingly throughout the film as well like it's something which is you know really it has such destructive uh outcomes like it yeah. has to be used sparingly uh, and it it retains its power that way yeah. but i think two is absolutely fine and we don't even see you know like that that, that is quite abridged at the end because we yeah. get into the end of the film well also he crossly threatens john hurt anthony as well doesn't he with with the amazing line get out of here anthony or i'll or i'll shout your bloody ears off oh yeah which is just <laughs> <laughs> it's a really awkward threat yeah, but we've already—I think we've already seen the shout by then. Though. So although it's a real comedy line, there's a real horror underlining it, and also he's telling him to get to get out because he's gonna have it away with his wife. Yeah, so it's all—it's so dark by that point. It's so I love how that because he Crossley just is becomes part of the family, and then him and his character in Susanna York they 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 start this relationship. If she doesn't, I don't think quite realize she doesn't know as much about the shouts. 
So that that threat must have sounded really weird. <laughs> yeah, but and also I think that, that there's a new family dynamic by then, isn't there? Because they talk, talk early on, there's about kids. There's an absence of children because Crosley claims to have, under an Aborigine right, he's he claims to have killed his children without yes, any yeah. threat of kind of prosecution. And then Rachel and Anthony talk about the fact they haven't been able to have any children. And then by the point where Crosley's made himself a home in the house, it's like him and Rachel are the parents and John Hurt is suddenly the, the, their child who gets sent into the village to do er- errands while they go off to bed. It's, mm. a, it's a really, really unsettling dynamic that's established, which again is another reason why I think it's, it's, such, a, it's such an unsettling film. Hello, love. What happened? Sorry, I'm late, darling, but um, is this... Oh, uh, oh uh, this is uh, Mr. Crossley. He's uh, come for lunch. Uh, Mr. Crossley, this is my wife, Rachel. How nice. I think there should always be people there for Sunday lunch. I must admit, I invited myself. Well, you generally have to do that with Anthony. He just expects people to arrive, whether they've been invited or not. Oh, that's rubbish. The other thing about watching this film now is seeing young John Hurt, who in my brain is just always this actor who's of a certain age. Yeah. And I think this is probably the youngest I've seen John Hurt in a film. Yeah, and he's absolutely beautiful, isn't he? he looks, he's, he's such a handsome s- man. Yeah, and such an innocent, and but also got a slightly sinister edge, and his, whoever did his costumes is just a genius, because he just looks brilliant the whole way through it as well. But you can see, I mean, there's so much going on with him, isn't there? A lot of the time he hasn't got a, a lot to say. There's an amazing sequence where he goes out to vent his frustration by chopping some logs to oh, assert yeah. his masculinity. And he chops the first log and it splits in half and flies through the window, yeah. smashes his window. <laughs> it's like, so tragic. But he plays that so beautifully. Yeah, he's, just a guy, he's a guy who's trying really hard, but it's not, it's not, nothing's going right for him. I guess it's yeah. a bit of foreboding for, for what comes later on. You know, yeah. He's, He's trying to 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 be masculine. He's trying to win, and it doesn't. It just doesn't work. Yeah, which I I think is what makes me think that whatever Crossley is, is is he's brought it on himself. John Hurt has welcomed this in, and that adds to his growing frustration and impotence and and his gradual emasculation into just being the child of the house. Absolutely. A real horror <laughs> being aged aged down and losing and your wife becoming your mother. Yeah. Yeah. And he yeah. I mean that's the other thing, isn't it, with with the Rachel character. She seems to because she's the one who doesn't want Crossley there, but there's a point where he just kinda casts a spell over her and then she's in love with him. That's really sinister. I love that dynamic as well, like just how John Hurt's very keen to. Oh yeah, he'll it's, we'll have he can have dinner. He can stay one night. He can stay two nights, and then they have this switch when he experiences the shout and he's so traumatized he doesn't want to leave bed. But Rachel is oh I'll just go. We'll go out. We'll go to the shops. We're going to start doing this, and and then he's lost his ally. He's experienced this traumatic thing, and then he loses his companion in this film. Yeah, and then it, it sort of you know things go from bad to worse for him. Yeah, I lo- and I love the bit where Crossley and Rachel are sat across the table from each other, which is the bit that I think is a bit of a nod to performance when her faces kind of merge and he just mm. looks at her and he's so serious and it's so intense and he says, I could help you in the garden. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah. Actually, when you think, is he actually going to help with the gardening? Is that what he's offering? But every, everything he says is really 
really sinister. The Shout is in the 90 Minutes or Less Film Festival. We're delighted to play this horrific feature that you've selected (laughs) for us, Mark. Brilliant. (laughs) At our festival, it'll be taking place on a big screen. That's what I bring to the festival. But I'd love to know what you as a guest curator would bring to this screening. How would you like to present this to an audience? Well, I think it it should be... I I think it probably should be in a village hall. Maybe the church hall. Put the big screen in the church hall and show it there. And maybe, you know have a have a bit of entertainment beforehand with the with the church organist playing and you should probably turn up with in a menage a trois and uh, <laughs> and, and go home with the uh the partner you didn't arrive with or bring some sheep with you yes <laughs> that can take up the whole road <laughs> yeah <laughs> That sounds like an excellent setting. It's a film that sort of lends itself to that. I think my flourish would be I'd encourage people to cycle and I would let the air out of all of their tyres during the film. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, chaos would ensue afterwards. If you could invite one special guest to this screening, living living or dead, who would you want to invite and maybe have a conversation with? Oh, I'd probably invite Nick Rogue. I'd probably invite, you know, he's probably the answer to most questions like that. <laughs> but it's terrible, isn't it? Because poor old Skolomowski, you know, we've, it's his film and I keep bringing up Nick Rogue. But yeah, I'd love to see what Rogue thought of it and also um, have a chat to him to see how, how he might have tackled the source material. That is fascinating. I would love to know how you know what what he thought when he read it and yeah, and, and now what he thinks of the film. Yeah, maybe we'll find out why he didn't do it. Yeah. What was the reason? I mean, it might have been... I just spoke to my agent about a book that I'm quite keen to option and he sent back a, a message saying, yeah, it looks great, but is it a bit too much of an obvious choice for you? And I wonder whether it's the same with with this, whether at that stage it was too much an obvious choice for for Rogue. It's interesting because it didn't damage his and Jeremy Thomas's working relationship. They worked together on many films after this. Yeah. I mean, maybe he was just busy. Could have been, yeah. <laughs> I'm doing something else, sorry, mate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Shooting in Devon, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if that was the answer at the dream q and I, I, that, uh, that would kill me. <laughs> yeah, that's it. End, end of the Q&A. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think this film could or should be longer than 90 minutes? No. No, it's got... It's, there's no reason. I mean, think on a very practical level... I was able to, I, you know, had a, a lot to do today, but I was, a, but I had enough time to sit and watch it, and then make some notes about it afterwards, you know. So, eighty-two minutes, absolutely ideal, and there's, there's no reason why it should be longer. So there we have it. The Shout is now in the 90 Minutes or Less Film Festival. Mark, as we release this podcast, Bait will be in cinemas. Uh, is there a place people should head to if they want to find out information on, on where to watch it? Yeah, I suppose the best place to go is the BFI website. I think it's the BFI Now Showing page as um, they're distributing the film in the UK. So it's got a list of two weeks worth of previews that start in Cornwall on the 16th and then travel all around the country and end up in London for the release on the 30th of August so all the information's there and it'll also list the screens that we're playing on from the 30th I think hopefully it's going to open on about 25 screens it's looking like which is great 
Is there a local cinema near you that you're looking forward to seeing the film in? Just down the hill from where I am now in an old fish processing plant, we've got a two-screen art house cinema called the Newlyn Film House, which is actually where Alistair and Susie, the owners of the cinema, that allowed me to go down there and test the grade and test the DCP and listen to the mix all the way through the process. So we're doing our first preview down there. Obviously the film's set in the fishing community. I live in a fishing community here. So that'll be a big test really to see if I've nailed the the world of fishing, whether people recognize it as the world that they, the community they live in. I mean, I, once you put a film out there, you can't really, you've got no control over whether people like it or not. It's all subjective, but when it comes to representing people, I think it's a little bit more binary. So I'm really hoping that I've done the, the community that I live in proud and put them up on screen in an authentic and believable way. Where can people find out more about what you're up to on, on social media? Um, well, I'm on Twitter and Instagram. So my Twitter, I believe, is Mark underscore Jenkin. And my Instagram, I think, is the same. But if you look up Mark Jenkin, there aren't too many of us. So <laughs> I'm, sure I'm, I'm sure I'm discoverable. Thank you so much for talking to us, Mark. Thank you for making Bates. I highly recommend seeing this film on a big screen. There's so much detail in, in that film, and it, it's definitely the best way to see it. It's such an immersive experience. Thank you for uh, saying that, Sam. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And yeah, hopefully the people of the UK will get a chance to see it. Please do. It's in cinemas right now. Thank you, listeners, for listening. Uh, please do subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. As an independent podcast, that stuff really helps. Just a little star rating. Five stars. That would be lovely. We're also available on Spotify and all good podcatchers. And you can stream us on 90minfilmfest.com. That's 90 with a 9 and a 0. You can also contact us on Twitter and Instagram at 90minfilmfest. The show is produced by Louise Owen and me, Sam Clements. The show is edited by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostwick. And our artwork is by Sam Gilby. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Yeah.